I was delighted to hear about Barb Stewart, Arthur Karkner, and Bob Hatfield's individual paths into the world of political activism. Each of them seemed to be motivated by a deep sense of solidarity and desire to leave the world a better place than they had found it, as Bob had put it. These characteristics appear to be crucial to embracing the life of an activist and to being good at it in the long term. But, of course, protest is so much more than a collection of individuals with the will to get up and take a stand, as I quickly learned from these three. Given their collective wisdom and experiences with large unions and a great variety of workers' strikes and protests, I wanted to know just what it took to mobilize and organize protesters and strikers into large demonstrations. How did they manage to convince hundreds and sometimes thousands of people to come out and demonstrate for a cause on the hill or elsewhere? What tools did they use? And once they managed to get people out there, how did they make them into an effective force? What I learned is that it takes a lot of work, discipline, and structure, and that it takes plenty of creative educational programs, but above all, it takes communication. Especially in the days before the advent of email and digital communications, knowing how to get in touch with your fellow strikers and protesters were key to being successful. Barb started off our conversation on this topic. Although she did not make the high-level planning decisions over strikes in her union, she did describe her very busy experiences of on-the-ground organizing, getting the members of her union out on the picket line, and of course preparing the protests themselves. Being local, I wasn't necessarily on the organizing part of it. You know, I mean, for me it was the, the campaign was organized and then it was we carried it out. Like I'd have to get my members out, my executive, mm-hmm. you know, get people out to uh, support whatever it was that had been decided upon as the actions we were going to do. Leafleting, we did that <clears throat> quite often at our office and it got to a point that people would see me. Uh, you know, standing downstairs, and they go, oh, Barb's got stuff for us, and they'd head for me and just take it. It was just an automatic. There must be something I'm supposed to read. Uh, the, the biggest problem was trying to get the members actually active. I mean, they would read it, and they'd agree, but it was just trying to get them out. And so anytime we had a picket line, uh, it was always scary as to how many we'd actually end up getting out, but it was always very uh, reassuring when there was a lot did come out. The other thing is, how you know, if you want to do a, something on a hill, you have to have a good sound system because there's nothing worse than a bullhorn that, you know, you're talking into the, into the void, right? And then if you happen to be on the outskirts or at the back, you don't hear a word. The other thing, too, is that it often bounces back and echoes off, off the, uh, the building surrounding. So sometimes it's like, what are they saying? So it was a combination of, of things, and uh, I, I was on the regional strike committees and things. So you know, you go, you do your work in the morning on the picket lines, and then you'd have the regional strike meeting in the afternoon, and then you'd be going home to go to tell your people what they had to do for the next day, and and that took uh, there was a lot of work involved in in being out on strike, <laughs> not just the four hours because we were putting in you know fourteen, sixteen, eighteen hour days depending on what was going on. It was a lot of fun, but it was also very a lot of work and very tiring. Arthur, on the other hand, had a bit more to say about the planning process and how various groups would collaborate on various protests together. He also made sure to underline their efforts to educate and prepare people so that they too would have the proper organizing and mobilization skills. I, I come from a pre-flash mob generation, so I'm, I'm not going to tell you about what you can do with social media because that's not really been my experience. 
Uh, we had a network of people, uh, and so, for example, a decision might be made uh, by a strike committee about a demonstration. It might be made by a social action group or, or so forth. But again, there was a network of people who knew each other. So frequently, the means of contacting people would be, you would start off with a decision that you were going to do something. You would come up with a date. In a, in a committee structure, and then you would begin contacting people that you knew, and usually the people around the table when you made a decision would represent different sectors. For example, in, in um, agitation around issues like paid maternity leave, uh, there would be feminists involved, there would be political actors involved, you would have people from unions, and uh, often those were the same people. You know, it's not unusual for people to wear more than one hat. Other mechanisms that were used, uh, there would be newspaper advertisements taken out, but they were vastly expensive. Even back in the 1980s, that might be $16,000 for a full-page ad, and um, you were giving money to, to the Conrad Blacks of this world if you did that. So we did training, and, and Bob uh, was very involved in the training where we would talk to people about how to mobilize, how to set up a contact system, and sometimes it would be for something like a strike where there might be a change in strategy or a change in shift. So you would go from uh, a city-wide committee to people working in particular buildings and the people in buildings would have a set of strike captains who would have phone numbers for the people and say, okay, it's a change tomorrow. We're not going to be at Heron Road. We're going to be on Lisbon Street. So you learn to um, use the tools of mobilization and then to create more people who could do that. But Bob has found that that isn't as easy as it sounds. Often people didn't realize what needed to be done. I'd been doing some uh, strike preparation. I was in, in Quebec City. And a local president from a national defense local came to see me. Uh, this is before social media and email and stuff like that. Came to see me and said, why are we doing all these courses and stuff? Why don't we just walk out? And I tried to explain to him, you know, that we needed to be prepared and we would be walking out if we did at an appropriate time, but we needed to get ready. And uh, he said, but we are ready. All we need to do is the will to walk out. And I said to him, okay, well, how will you get in touch with your members to let them know that, you know, they're, they're needed on a picket line at such and such a time? And he said, well, you know, we've got a really good communication system, uh, you know, at work, you can contact everybody. And I said, right, I understand that. But if you're not at work, if you've walked out, do you have a list? of people's names and phone numbers and do you have a telephone tree because that was one of the ways that we used and you didn't have so it's one thing to just walk out but if you don't have all kinds of basic things in place like a communication system that doesn't depend on the employer for its effectiveness then you can't organize things like demonstrations or strikes or protests on the hill it, it's become easier with uh, social media, well actually with computers, having emails that you can send or even with phone numbers now with texts and, and everything else is certainly a lot easier than it used to yeah. be. That has certainly made it easier for contact but I mean the phone trees was the way when we, I remember when I first started out was having a phone tree in place so that I would be responsible for calling say 10 people and those 10 people were responsible for 
phoning 10 different people and, and on and on. How big was your local? My local at that time was about 500 people. 500 people. Imagine you've got to get 500 people out, ready to strike and to protest tomorrow, but you don't have email, you don't have text message, and you certainly don't have social media. All you've got is a phone and a contact booklet. You've got to hurriedly call 10 people to tell them where they're going tomorrow, which signs they'll need, and what time to be there. But of course, they've also got to call their 10 people right after that. And then each of their 10 people need to call another set of 10 people, and so on and so on. Like so many other strikers and protesters before them, Barb, Arthur, and Bob had to understand and address some of the key considerations of organizing and bringing to bear a successful strike. This included defining the problem and determining the solution, crafting and coordinating messaging, effective communication between strikers and with target audiences, a division of labor between strikers, the selection of their location, and of course logistics. Arthur attributed their tactics and strategies to those developed throughout the 20th century by earlier activists and thinkers like the famous American organizer Saul Alinsky, who played important roles in both Depression-era activism and the 1960s civil rights movement. Arthur also went on to underline the fact that activist strategies were transnational. Throughout the last century, they have not only evolved and changed, but they've also crossed international borders, with protesters around the world sharing their methods and practices with one another. But, as Barb, Arthur, and Bob needed to explain, effective organizing tactics and protest strategies truly depended on a number of different technologies, from simple printed leaflets to the rapid and direct messaging power of the internet. Communication and transportation technologies have been vital to most coordination and mobilization efforts of activist groups throughout the last century. What would the on-to-Ottawa trek of 1935 have been without the railway or the telegraph? What would the 2010 Arab Spring have been without social media platforms? And what would the strikes that Barb, Arthur, and Bob participated in have been without the household telephone? However, just as strategies and technologies for protests were developed and became successful, so too did the attempts to counter them. Beginning in the 1980s, Businesses and governments became more and more successful in limiting the capacity of unions to strike and in eroding workers' benefits previously attained over the last 40 years. For example, under U.S. President Ronald Reagan and British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, labor laws became stricter and federal public service employees' wages and benefits lost ground to other sectors. Both Reagan and Thatcher forcefully disrupted various public service unions in their countries. Strikers were vilified, dispersed, and sometimes even lost their right to strike, like in the case of the air traffic controllers in the U.S. under Reagan. We cannot compare labor management relations in the private sector with government. Government cannot close down the assembly line. It has to provide without interruption the protective services which are government's reason for being. It was in recognition of this that the Congress passed a law forbidding strikes by government employees against the public safety. It is for this reason that I must tell those who fail to report for duty th this morning they are in violation of the law and if they do not report for work within 48 hours they have forfeited their jobs and will be terminated. Many people like Barb, Arthur and Bob saw Prime Minister Brian Mulroney as the Canadian equivalent. For example, in addition to cuts to public service employees, Brian Mulroney's government introduced legislation in early 1991 that would freeze public service wages for a year and place a ban on strikes. 
Our policy is to make Canada strong again, to welcome investment, to stimulate growth and to create those thousands of new jobs that we need by expanding enterprise. Our commitment is to manage your tax dollars prudently, to treat taxpayers fairly, to ensure dignity and economic security for our elderly and disadvantaged, and to work for cooperation at home. In the face of Mulroney's cuts, his government's bad faith bargaining with unions, and in support of job security and gender pay equity, the Public Service Alliance of Canada engaged in a strike against Mulroney's government the likes and size of which they had never seen. This protest took many forms and manifested itself across the country. News media at the time reported on slowed-down air traffic, shutdowns of mail delivery, and public servants threatening to come forward and whistleblow on government corruption and mismanagement. The strike was not only exceptional for its breadth and size, but also because it was one of those rare occasions that members of the public service, who were typically tasked with conducting themselves in a nonpartisan and neutral fashion, took on very open and public political stances against the government's treatment of them. To deal with the strike, the government threatened to introduce more legislation that would force employees back to work under penalty of fines. You could get $1,000 per day for individual members on strike, $50,000 per day for union leaders encouraging strike actions, and $100,000 per day to a union as a whole who engaged in a strike. Eventually, the government and the Public Service Alliance halted hostilities to sit back down at the negotiation table. But these talks broke down and led to another strike, this time with a massive demonstration on Parliament Hill itself. This is where Barb, Arthur, and Bob come in. For my three interviewees, this particular demonstration on the Hill meant a lot to them. It was very formative to their careers as labor activists and represents an iconic victory for them and for the PSAC. In Ottawa itself, members were bussed in from Quebec and other places to support the Ottawa-based members in their large-scale demonstration on the Hill. In their struggle to protect their livelihoods and in their protest on the Hill, the strikers had the support and presence of their friends, families, and various members of the public. Both Barb and Bob personally were extremely active at the time and found themselves on the ground amongst all the other strikers on the Hill. They both have vivid memories of the march to the front lawns of the Hill and how this more than 75,000 strong demonstration played out. What was really impressive with that strike, though, is that because people were bussed in, they had come. There was a bunch that came from Gatineau and came up Portage Bridge and then down Wellington and up onto the hill. And there was some from came up from Rideau. And you ended up with was masses of people coming from two directions and then funneling up and, and onto the, to the hill. And the, just standing there and watching that was just, oh my God, look at them all come. Look at the people. And, and they just kept coming. And the street was full. Sidewalks were full. And people were up on, uh, were, had actually come in further down uh, on Parliament Hill and were up on the hill walking. Like, so it was just a convergence and coming from the south. It was just, it was truly impressive just watching everybody coming in and, and just made everybody go, oh, wow, look what, we're going to do something, you know? In, in that 1991 strike, in that particular demonstration, there was quite a lot of uh, good humour. Mm-hmm. I mean, people felt they were, they were doing the right thing. Mulroney was, was really hated and subsequently lost very badly in, in the next election. But people felt that they were doing the right thing and, and there was this humour. So when people were walking past the Langevin block, where the Prime Minister's office is, you had people shouting, Jump, Brian, jump! <laughs> it was, uh, you know, there was, there was good humour and uh, there was a, a fun element to it. 
But once they got onto the hill, their experiences and perspective of what happened next were very different from one another. It was pretty inspiring being there as part of it, uh, being surrounded by that many people that were all there, voicing their opposition to the government and to the way bargaining was going. And it, it was pretty exciting. And I, I, I'm trying to remember exactly when it was that we stormed the hill. Somehow or other, I ended up near the front. I seemed to have that habit of doing that. And uh, somebody came up with a brilliant idea of let's storm the house. Okay, sure. So off we started up. You know, and we were down at the, the base of the, the steps, so up the stairs and then up the second, and we got, we got as far as the doors, and then the, the security guards had managed to close the doors. So we made it right outside the doors, and so some of us, well, if we can't go in, at least we'll, we'll sit down. And so somebody had a deck of cards, so we sat down and started playing, you know, playing cards, and people were chanting and having a good time, and uh, meanwhile, they were inside trying to get the, the prime, minister, <laughs> prime Minister sneak him out through a back door somewhere. And here we are playing cards. But uh, it, was pretty, it was pretty neat, actually. We were that close. Yeah, like two feet from the door when they lock. <laughs> closed it off. I was right at the barriers, and my experience was people started to move the barriers, shake the barriers backwards and forwards. I didn't, but people around me were. And the next thing I knew, the barriers were down and people were surging forward. And I thought, what's the plan here? <laughs> and I'm looking around and I had to make a conscious decision. Am I going to stay where I am? Am I going to go home? Or am I going to go forward? And I thought, well... I don't know what we're going to do when we get there, but um, let's go for it. So I then ran forward, and I, I was below the steps of the portico. What made you decide to do that? Um, well, as I say, I thought, well, the worst that can happen is we end up in there, and then we get apprehended. There were so many of us, you know, we get apprehended, and we end up in jail for a while, and then we go home. I wasn't sure about the value of it. It was great. It was great being there. <laughs> but I, I wasn't sure about the value and how the press would deal with it. You know, there's always this danger that that, that then becomes the story. Not the issues that you're on strike for, but the... The hooligans. Yeah, hooligans uh, um, invade uh, the citadel of democracy, you know, and it, it, there's, there's this sort of public perception thing. And particularly when, I mean, maybe there was a plan, but I wasn't aware of it, you know? I don't think there was a plan. I don't think there was either. I think it was just sort of, it happened. Like like you say, the barriers were being rocked back and forth, and all of a sudden they were down, and everybody, oh, let's go. And so I didn't think about the going to jail part. Well, I thought, you know, what, what's going to happen here? The worst is that yeah. we'll get arrested. So while Barb had some lighthearted fun storming the building just to end up playing cards, Bob had taken a step back to consider what objective they could have in pushing down the barricades. Despite the potential inadvisability of their actions, Bob was still prepared to take on the worst-case scenario of being arrested for demonstrating. Arthur tried to explain to me why their organization and control of the group during the protest broke down slightly, leading to people storming the hill, and he explained other potential risks that the protesters faced. There are sometimes great emotions uh, that sweep through a crowd, 
that particular big demonstration, it was an unseasonably hot autumn day. It was a very, very muggy, sticky kind of day. And our method of organization had broken down somewhat because we had um, uh, done a special strike newsletter to be distributed to people on the hill during the demonstration. And there were so many people clogging the streets and there was so much police and security presence that we couldn't actually get our flyers up on the hill. Like the success of our ability to mobilize people had cut off our ability to communicate with them. And that's, there are limits to any model and we, we touched up against the limits to our model there. It was very dangerous for people to have their back to those uh, barriers because I, I call those barriers leg breakers. Yeah. Uh, they're made out of welded metal and once they fall over, uh, they're just going to tangle people up and if there's a crowd trying to surge over them, there's a very high possibility that people are going to have broken legs and, and severe injuries and I don't think that's accidental that they designed those that way. In spite of this, Barb and the others were convinced of their success. The consequences of their strike, demonstration, and labor negotiations in 1991 had reverberations that continue to affect us in the present, both negative and positive. To avoid another strike of this magnitude, the government began isolating segments of the Public Service Alliance of Canada's membership into smaller, easier-to-manage unions, cutting them off from one another. Barb explains, As a result of that strike, the government then set about taking and cutting out areas, like for instance, in 1999, the Canada Customs Revenue Agency was formed from, from the Taxation Department, Revenue Canada, uh, it became an agency, again, taking it out of the mainstream government. Uh, the, the Canada Food Inspection Agency was done. Parks Canada was paired off so that over the next, say, seven or eight years, it could never happen again, that the, the entire federal government could be on strike at the same point in time. On the other hand, Barb underlined the successes of the strike. One of the big things that came out of, of that strike was job security for uh, federal government employees, which has been very, very effective. And ever since it, it was signed with the 91 agreement, the government's been trying to make changes to it because um, it has allowed for a lot of people to, for people that wanted to stay in, to be able to switch jobs with people who were uh, being given surplus notices. And so it's it's as effective today as it was in, when it was created in 91, and it's certainly the last several years has been very, very important with all of the cuts that have been going on. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's going to keep a job because that's not what happens, but it certainly gives more options and um, it forces the employer to look for reasonable job offers and that. Um, so in that, that was the biggest thing, I think, that came out, you know, the biggest result of the 1991 strike. A lot of people don't realize just how important that was and how important it is today. Strikes, protests, demonstrations. They can all have a tremendous effect on political struggles, both positive and negative, for those involved. Just like how Richard Bennett lost the election that followed the 1935 onto Ottawa trek, so too did Brian Mulroney's Conservative Party in the election that came after the strike. His government became extremely unpopular due to its treatment of public service employees, as well as a whole host of other reasons, and suffered its worst defeat since the election in 1935. 
But as empowering as the strike was for the Public Service Alliance's bargaining position, and as monumental as the protest on the Hill came to be seen by those experiencing it and reading about it in the newspaper, they didn't end the problems of the labor movement. As Barb said, in spite of all the hard work and their apparent victory, in some ways, things were also going to get worse for workers' rights under successive governments. Barb, Arthur, and Bob's explanation of organizing protests and their experiences of the 1991 strike begin to highlight some of the complexity of protests and political activism, as well as Parliament Hill's role as a place of public demonstration. Protests are far more complicated than the spontaneous grouping of loud and angry people holding signs and chanting political slogans. The reactions of political authorities to protesters and their demands are also not as simple as a straight acceptance or denial. As in the case of the 1991 strike, sometimes the government will concede on one issue, but push further in the opposite direction on a different issue. And Parliament Hill, of all the places to voice political disagreement, seems to be quite special to protesters and members of the public alike. It seems to represent something more than just the workplace of the Canadian government. For people like Barb, Arthur, and Bob, as I quickly found out, Parliament Hill is just as much theirs as it is the members of Parliament. <laughs> 